Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, Payments Professor here, and welcome back to the Payments Podium. And I got to say welcome back because welcoming you all back, but I'm also welcoming back Diana Kern. You might remember her from our last session on Regulation E. Well, she's come back to talk more about Regulation E. Now, the last time we talked about things like, well, what is Regulation E? We talked about, well, what's an error and what are the seven definitions and what happens if you have an you know, an omission or something's incorrect or a duplicate. We talked about what does Reg E apply to. We went a little bit into the different timeframes that are there too, like the 60-day timeframe, the 45-day timeframe for ATMs, the 90-day timeframe for POS debit cards. Well, we brought Diana back because when it comes to Reg E, there's a lot more to talk about. So Diana, welcome back to the Payments Podium. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me back. And hello again, everyone. I have to say that when we got done last time, I thought, oh my gosh, we're done already. We have to be done. There's so much more to say. So I'm glad we decided to do a part two. I am too. And it's it's interesting because one of the questions that comes up that, you know, you and I have even talked about and getting ready for this is that what happens if somebody doesn't make that request, a consumer is outside of the timeframes. Do you still have to do all of this reporting? I mean, you know, they, they didn't get to you timely and the timeframes are there for a reason. So what would you tell somebody that says, all right, I got notified by the consumer, but they're outside of the timeframe. What do I do now? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. And I think it's important for everyone to understand fundamentally the reg was written, the, the language of the intent was written first and foremost for timely reporting with that expectation of timely reporting. But of course, humans, they don't necessarily always do what we want them to do, right? So when the reg was written, not only was there first and foremost this intent of timely reporting, but then, okay, if there isn't timely reporting by the consumer, then this is what happens. And the then this is what happens piece is really more related to the consumer's limit of liability, which is subsection 1005.6 in the reg. So subsection 1005.11 covers error resolution procedures, which apply when there is that timely reporting we've discussed. But just because someone doesn't report timely doesn't mean that the financial institution can turn the consumer away. And over the years that I've worked in the industry, I've had several financial institutions tell me, oh, well, you know, they didn't notify me for 90 or more days beyond the statement date of the first statement on which the error occurred or appeared. And so I just told him, sorry, Charlie, I can't help you. And, and that kind of hurts me. I'm like, ah, oh, please no. be careful. Yeah. You, you don't want to do that. So really, we have to remember that even if they don't report it to us timely, there is a period of zero consumer liability, and that goes back to the beginning. So that first 60 days of zero liability for the consumer, 60 days after that first statement date, will always apply. There's no expiration date on that. So even if they've reported to me 90 days or more beyond that statement date, 
that does not relieve me as the financial institution from that zero liability time frame. And I do need to say that I'm kind of um, phrasing this or answering this as if we're not talking about a loss or theft of an access device because, of course, that zero liability piece of subsection 6 goes into play when it is no loss or theft of an access device. You notice there's a problem on your statement. You notice there's a problem on your online banking system, et cetera. All right, well, I got to say something uh, for all those of you out there listening going, did she really just, you know, tell me all the subsections this applies to? Yes. When, <laughs> when you become a payments geek and expert and you worked in it long enough, you will get to where you just recite these things by heart. It happens and it's a wonderful day when it actually does get there because we have to keep up with them. If there are changes, we go and we read them and it, it just becomes part of who you are, I have to say. Now, you talked about like that zero liability time frame. So that what if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is even though somebody may be reporting outside of the time frame that requires you to do some things, there are still some things that can be done. In other words, there are some payments that in the world of ACH or in the world of cards, you could potentially get back for them because of the protections that are still there. You may not be able to get everything, but because of some of the timeframes for what has happened in certain situations, that's another key because you even mentioned if, you know, uh, their credentials were compromised versus they gave up an access device, certain situations do change it. But there is a potential, even though somebody's outside of the time frame for notification, that you could still get some of the money back. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And I was actually referring specifically to the consumer's liability limit where that zero liability is for the consumer. So it's really how you divide it up is what we're talking about, right? If there is a six-month time frame going back a year or more ago on which all those errors occurred, let's say it's a recurring month after month thing, there is a period of time in that six months time frame where the consumer will have liability, but it's after the zero liability period at the beginning has expired. And the key phrase that I really enforce to people is to think about, had the consumer reported timely to you, if they had come to you in a timely manner, what could you have stopped from happening beyond that time frame, additional beyond that time frame? And that's really where their liability comes into play. Got it. Yeah, that's important. Again, the, the time frame is a key. And it's also understanding the payment channel you're applying it to. Now, something else that I want to talk about, and we mentioned it a little bit in, in our previous discussion was the CFP FAQ. And I think what happened, you know, is we didn't go into it in detail because it was brand new. And we're just like, okay, this is standard stuff. But since then, I know I've gotten some questions on it. I've even put some YouTube videos out. And I know you've been getting some questions about it, too. So can we talk a little bit more about that CFPB, which is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? They're the ones who own Reg E. They're the ones who write it and can make changes to it. And the FAQ that they put out to help, well, to help give us clarification on what we can and cannot do. Um, any comments in general you want to say about the CFPB and Reg E and the FAQ before we go deeper into the questions? 
Absolutely. There are a couple of them on there that I get asked about a lot. And it was really kind of heartening for me to see that the answers they provided, even though they might have worded them a little different, are essentially the answers that I've been providing with similar questions for years. So that made me feel more more comfortable with what I've been doing. I have to say, Kevin, though, I like the fact that you said that they own Reg E. I'm going to use that if you don't mind, because when I talk about the CFPB and their relationship with Reg E, I'm, I'm trying to say that same thing. I've just never used that word. So that's my new verb. They own it. But, you know, there's a question on there specifically number five, talking about private network rules. Can we get into that one a little bit deeper? Because I oh, get please. asked about private network rules all the time. And I work in both the card payment space and the ACH payment space space, obviously very applicable to electronic funds transfer transactions. And so I get asked about private network rules a lot. And they are very clear, which this wasn't, you know, anything that I think was in doubt with uh, people that work with private network rules. But they were very clear in that question about the fact that if there are private network rules that are different, you can never do anything that is less consumer friendly, just kind of as a blanket statement to, to put it out there that way. The private network rules that I am familiar with and that I work with for uh, debit card issuers specifically are more consumer friendly. And of course, that's allowed. You can always do things that are more consumer friendly, just never anything if it's a consumer-owned account that is less consumer friendly than what the reg says. Well, it's it's interesting because one of the things I, I say a lot at different talks is there's a place for every payment and every payment has its place. And when you mention the private network rules, what they will do and where they apply is when it is above and beyond the federal regulation. Because I also have people say, well, what if there's a dispute between the two? The federal regulation wins every single time. Go with what it says. However, if you get more protection, if the private network rules go above and beyond, like, for example, um, my mom's one of those that swears by you buy large appliances on your credit card because they will give you additional protection. And she's right. And most of the card networks, they'll do some type of protection that is a well above and beyond what Reg E does. And so she likes to go with those. So I, I love that you mentioned the private network rules. You know, another one that comes from the CFPB, though, has to do with that. All right, I'm reporting a problem and I've got an issue and, and I've seen a lot, especially small financial institutions will do this. Well, you got an issue, but did you file a police report? How about you go file a police report and bring that to me? And then, then I'll start working on your problem. Can they do that? Yeah, that's a that's a good question too. You know, you there are a lot of things that as an issuer, as a financial institution, you want for documentation. And in some cases, when it comes time to submit a chargeback through the, the network, the global networks, you need some documentation. So there are certain situations where you just have to have it in order to go down that private network path to do a chargeback or submit some sort of an exception. The reg is very clear that any additional hoops that are not spelled out. So, Kevin, let's say I give an example of a, quote, hoop that you can have the consumer go through, and that would just be an error resolution procedures, how you can require written confirmation of an oral notice, verbal notice of an error, and if you don't receive that within the 10 business days, 
and you're going to extend your investigation longer than 10 business days, then you don't have to give provisional credit to the consumer throughout the life of the investigation. You can't stop investigating. You still need to come to a conclusion within 45 or 90 days, but you can withhold that provisional credit if they don't give you that confirmation. So that's an example of kind of a hoop that some would say is that the reg does allow, but these extra things, filing a police report, contacting the merchant, you know, calling up the merchant and trying to get help from them. You can ask, you know, there's no harm in saying to the consumer, hey, it would really help us out if you would please do this or please do that. You just can't make it a condition of your compliance with reg E and refuse to follow through on error resolution procedures or any other condition of the reg if they don't do it. So let me get this straight, because this is also what I tell people. You can ask. You can encourage them to go file a police report. You can ask them, hey, have you filed a police report? You can tell them it's a good idea to go file a police report. But you cannot say we're not doing anything until you give us a police report. Correct? I agree 100%. You can't make it a requirement or a condition in order to comply. Okay, well, here's another one that comes from the FAQ. You and I know as payments experts, a lot of times there are payments that go through that consumers dispute that they really probably shouldn't be disputing. They just don't recognize what the payment or the purpose of the payment is for. They went to a merchant and they got something and the way the merchant coded or the way it came across and it appears on their statement doesn't match what they expected. So they're like, I didn't buy this. And if they would just go back and talk to the merchant, I mean, not maybe physically, but, you know, get online with the website or get on the phone with them, they would discover in many times that, yeah, you actually did buy it and just leave the payment alone. Or they would discover that you could probably work it out with the merchant directly and don't need to get your bank involved. However, does that allow, does Reggie say that, look, bank or credit union, um, you don't have to deal with it. You can just tell your consumer, go talk to the merchant and work it out with them because it'll probably be easier to work out with them. Are, are they allowed to do that? Well, anything that constitutes an error in subsection 11, where there are the seven definitions of an error, the answer to that question doesn't change. The hoops are not to be made a requirement of that. Fortunately, within both payment systems, ACH and CARDS, the rules, and remember, these are private sector rules. Mm -hmm. A little bit earlier, you were talking about how if there's any kind of a, a difference there between compliance with Reg E and or private network rules, that of course you want the federal regulation to be the one that's applicable. Although, again, I think any private network rules that I'm familiar with are more consumer friendly. So therefore, you would not be non-compliant with the reg. But you have to understand that the global brand rules or private network rules or any other non non-federal government type of a requirement or regulation, those mm -hmm. are contract law. When you put one of those brands on your card or when you play in the ACH payment system, you're playing in a contract law type of a business. So there's no compliance necessarily there that the card networks are, are checking to make sure that you're compliant with their rules. So within those brand rules and within, uh, within the ACH rules, there are 
rules that say that the name, the company name, so in the ACH, of course, that would be in the, the company name in the batch header, in the card payment system, that's going to be in the transaction data that comes through the processors. We do, as merchants, as originators or ODFIs or whatever whatever role you play, we do need to make sure that we do, we're doing our best to put a consumer to give a consumer the merchant name or the originator name that is recognized to them. Now, does that happen? In a perfect world, yes, it happens 100% of the time, but we know we're not in a perfect world. Right. So if there's something that you, as a financial institution, can do to help the consumer recognize that merchant name based on internet searches or based on contacting the merchants and so forth, if the consumer refuses to do that, then you may need to take that step yourself versus making it a hoop that they must jump through in order for you to proceed with error resolution. Yeah, save the, the hoops for the basketball court. We can't do that when it comes to reggae resolution. That is for sure. Yeah. Now, now, something else too that we, we, you've said a couple of times is provisional credit. Can, can you just quickly, I, I got another couple of questions about the FAQ, but I know sometimes people hear provisional credit and, what, and they're like, what do you mean provisional credit? Can you just quickly tell us what's provisional credit mean? I mean, fundamentally, it's just credit being given to the consumer so that the financial institution can take longer than 10 business days to investigate. And I think we briefly mentioned already, there's a 45 or 90 day time frame based on certain conditions, type of transaction. If it's a POS debit card, you get longer. If it's a new account, you get longer. If it's a non-US originated or acquired transaction, you get longer. But that notwithstanding, here's one mistake, you know, kind of a Diana's piece of advice that I think a lot of people make when it comes to actual procedures and actual do, following through on their operations. They go through the provisional credit process standardly as just Every, it's provisional credit to them no matter what the situation is. And so what I mean is no matter what the claim is by the consumer, no matter how long the financial institution might think they need to take to investigate, they just always go through that whole drawn out process saying, oh, here's provisional credit. When how hard would it be in some situations if you, if you isolate or if you uh, investigate or if you think about each error claim in your procedures a little bit differently? You know, each situation is unique. Look at them in, in a unique perspective. Say to yourself when that claim comes in, do I really need more than 10 business days to investigate? Is this a pretty clear cut situation where there's unauthorized activity and there's absolutely zero or almost zero chance that my investigation will conclude that no error occurred, therefore no fraud occurred? There are a lot of situations where financial institutions I talk to, I'll say to them at, at the beginning, well, what, what is it that you think you would determine from this investigation? I mean, knowing this consumer, knowing this cardholder, this account holder, knowing this merchant, what are the chances that you're going to end up concluding that no error occurred? And they're like, yeah, that, that rarely happens. We rarely are, are going to conclude that no error occurred and that it wasn't a valid unauthorized claim. So then I kind of do a, okay, well, why then are we going through this whole process of saying, well, here's provisional credit. I'm going to investigate when we know the outcome or when we know 
what we almost 100% of the time will find is the outcome. Why not just recredit, don't call it provisional, call it final and be done. I have done the exact same thing. I mean, I'm dying inside because I've, I've talked to people. I was like, don't you have better things to do with your time? If you already know what the outcome is going to be, just give them the money, document what you've got to document and move on. You don't have to get additional documentation to show that you know it was fraud. Once you've, you've proven that, move on. But I also have had the flip side of with working with consumers that have contacted me and they're like, okay, I got the money, but then they took it back away and, and they explained it. And I realized, oh no, what happened is you had provisional credit. And then after they did the investigation, they determined you were actually the one that was guilty. And so they took the money back away from you. That, that That's how provisional credit works. And in that situation, and this is where I want to get back to the FAQ, it had to deal with, you know, they claimed the access device had been taken away, that the access device had been stolen. So if we go back to the FAQ, the first couple of questions I think are great because they deal with, well, what if my information has been stolen? What if somebody's, you know, kind of tricked me into taking taken my stuff. So the question is, you know, if a, a, a party fraudulently induces somebody into sharing their account access, account access information, and then that information is actually used to create a electronic transfer. Does that transfer that's created by the someone else using the credentials they stole, does that equal an unauthorized electronic funds transfer? Well, fundamentally, the answer, the short answer to that question is yes, that it does equal an unauthorized EFT. But to add a little bit of color to that, think about this. I encourage people to consider the EFT, which remember, that's electronic funds transfer transaction. So each individual EFT, if someone brings a claim to you, it could have one EFT, it could have 20 EFTs. You have to evaluate the EFT individually, each transaction individually. Now, of course, if all of them are a result of, you know, one merchant, one situation, you can take what you know from one and kind of apply it to the rest, of course. But you have to think about whether the EFT itself not did somebody give out their credentials because a bad guy tricked them into doing it, but the EFT transaction. Did the consumer give authorization for the transaction itself? And in what you described, where the consumer was tricked into giving out that information, uh, I believe in one of the FAQs, the example that they gave was a caller pretending to be the consumer's financial institution and asking for information. And the consumer gave it out thinking that they were legitimately talking to their, their financial institution. So they gave out either online banking credentials or card information or whatever was necessary to perform fraud transactions. Well, in that case, the consumer didn't authorize those EFTs. All they did was fall for a bad guy's scam via phone and uh, give out that information that they shouldn't have. And I have heard institutions, maybe not in those exact specific examples, but I have heard institutions say, well, you know, they, they gave out there a, a couple of years ago, there was a Microsoft thing, I think, where people were having viruses downloaded or they were, you know, getting viruses downloaded through something they clicked on and shouldn't have, of course. 
And then the virus would then say, hey, call this number. Microsoft will help you fix this. Mm-hmm. And so then they would call that number thinking they were legitimately calling Microsoft to get help fixing whatever virus problem they had just downloaded for themselves. And they would end up giving out their card information for an EFT. And of course, all kinds of EFTs ensued from that. Well, there were not there was not authorization by the consumer for every single one of those EFTs. So you must evaluate those individually. That's my point. Okay. Yeah, and I agree with that too, because I uh, unfortunately I've been in a situation my card was compromised and I have to work with the, my institution to explain, okay, this one, this one, and this one I did not do. But this one and this one and this one I did do, you know, because things are taking place simultaneously or at the same time. Uh, of uh, the fraud fraudster being there, I was out, you know, making purchases and doing things. Another one, the second question that's in the FAQ wasn't just the credentials, it's the actual access device itself. So, I mean, it's along the same lines of what you just said, but I do want to make it clear for anybody listening in, what happens then if it's the actual access device that's compromised, not just my login credentials, but somebody's taken my access device and they use the access device, again, for fraudulent intent. Does that relieve the consumer of responsibility? Kind of a loaded question in a way, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But again, it's really all about fundamentally, did the consumer authorize the EFT that posted to the account? That's really what it's about. When I look at my account history online, and like you said, you pick out some transactions that you did and some transactions that you're like, oh, I did not initiate this transaction. And to me, a consumer authorizing a transaction, whether it's ACH or card, payment system. To me, a consumer authorizing a transaction is giving their assent. They're initiating the transaction. They are the ones that are engaging in the transaction. And then they're doing whatever authentication that requires, which in the card system, you know, of course, if it's an online transaction, there's no pin entry and so forth. So obviously, there's not a what's called a card holder verification Mm -hmm. method or a CVM that goes along with those. So when I say authentication, I'm not necessarily referring to any specific technology, but when someone is authorizing an EFT, I as a consumer, I'm at a minimum giving my assent because I'm initiating, I'm engaging in that transaction myself. Anything else that ensues? Absolutely. I did not authorize. It's unauthorized because I didn't engage in it. Well, and I love that whether you engaged, whether you actually gave consent and given the clarification. In fact, I'm going to ask you one last question in that area before we close out today, because I've seen fraudsters. uh, Well, I've seen people try to defraud their own financial institutions. And I've seen this one a lot really with family members where and it's happened in my family, I have to say, too, where a family member gave a child, a driving age child, a card. And gave them the pin and said, go to the store and buy me this, this, and this. And, well, the young person did. But they also did a little extra shopping on their own afterwards. And they got a little cash back even, you know, in the process too. And when it was discovered later, that person tried to say, no, those were unauthorized transactions. You know, I only told them they could do the one for the milk and the bread. I didn't say they could do any of the others. And I want my money back. Well, what happens in those situations? Because it's definitely different, but it sounds similar. But when you do give somebody your card and you do give them the pin 
And they do make the purchase you said they should, but then they also make an additional purchase that you didn't say they should. Are you, are you liable as a consumer then? Once you give someone, and I should be clear that there is not explicit language in the reg. When we look at the definition of unauthorized, which that's in subsection two, for those of you that are keeping track, <laughs> the definition of unauthorized is the last definition in that subsection. And that's a subsection entirely made up of definitions. But the definition talks about not only being a transaction that was not authorized by me, but also not authorized by someone I gave permission to uh -huh. use my access device. So if I give my teenagers my access device and permission to perform transactions, they kind of become, you know, kind of an authorized cosigner on my card. And those are my words. I don't, I'm not trying to quote the reg here. This is Diana's words. But that then, if we interpret that definition of unauthorized, that is authorized activity because I gave that person, they're like my proxy, I guess is the best word I've ever heard used to, to define that relationship. That person has become my proxy because I gave them permission. And so then I'll have institutions that'll say, well, you know, what do I do then to stop that from happening? Well, of course there's cardholder education, consumer education. Don't give someone else the proxy access to it, but Hey, I'm a parent of teenagers and I do it myself. But if I decide that I don't want that to happen as I'm uh, as a consumer, I need to then notify. And that language is in the reg. I need to go to my financial institution and notify them that I no longer want that proxy mm. access to happen. Well, then what are you going to do if you're the FI, right, Kevin? You're going to hot card the card or cancel the card, close out that card. And maybe if I admit to doing something that you told me not to do, maybe you're not going to give me another card because I can't handle my card properly. That's totally up to the card issuer to decide if they're going to do that or not. Oh, what a way to end the, the podcast that there are situations where you can be at fault and your financial institution does not have to just automatically give you another card. Talk about a cliffhanger. Well, Diana, we are running out of time and this has been a great discussion. Yes, I said great discussion when we talk about Regulation E. Who owns Reg E? Authorized by proxy. Uh, you cannot require a police report, but you can ask for one. Such great stuff. Thank you so much for being on the payments podium today and for those of you out there listening if you would like to be on the payments podium if there's a topic you would like to have addressed on the payments podium or maybe there's somebody you know who should be on the podium with the payments professor email me kevin at paymentsprofessor.com and i will do what i can to make sure that we get them on here and if you have any additional questions and would like to get a hold of diana uh get with me again and i will definitely get you in contact with her she is definitely my my reggie go-to expert person. She knows it. I mean, she quoted the subsections for us, folks. Uh, this has been a great discussion. All I got to say for all of you out there, uh, every payment has a place and there's a pay place for every payment. But boy, it does get complicated when things go wrong. But for now, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.